What happens chemically at the surface of liquid water is a lot different than what happens below the surface. And then you have you know, liquid water and a real party going on where everybody's grabbing on to different partners and everything else. But it's very different as they move to the surface and they, they start to be a little more introverted. And, and when I say that, stressed out because they don't have enough dance partners. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, The Chemistry at the Surface of Water. It's part of our 2019 special issue on the future of water. I'm Fenella Saunders. Understanding what happens at the surface of water is crucial to understanding how pollutants interact with water, think oil spills, and how to clean them up. Chemistry at the water surface is also key to understanding a number of biological processes. The whole body is, you know, water uh, aqueous next to a cell membrane. Right, and right. so how ions transport across that, those membranes is uh, related to some of the work that we've done uh, also. Geraldine Richmond is a chemist at the University of Oregon, winner of the 2018 Priestley Medal, the highest honor of the American Chemical Society, and she is the current president of Sigma Xi, which publishes American Scientist magazine. I spoke with her for an article in our 2019 special issue about the future of water and started by asking her how she uses lasers to study the water molecules that are just at the surface. Here's an excerpt from our interview. Yeah, so the really tricky part about studying any surface and particularly a water surface is you really only want those top molecules at the very top. You don't want 100 molecules down. You really want the top one, two or three layers. And so that's what gets tricky when, to come up with experiments that allow you to do that. And so the method that we use is, is what's called a, a nonlinear uh, optical method. And in this case, what we do is we put two laser beams on the surface to interrogate the molecules that are just on top. And those laser beams, very short pulse, very high intensity, but not so high that they boil the water away. We do try to avoid that or heat up the water. Uh, but the point is to be able to induce these molecules of the top layer to, uh, um, we call polarize, to move, slosh their electrons around and give us some information about how they're behaving. And so we need those two laser beams to do that. And so the light that comes off of the surface is, uh, we of course get these two beams coming off that are a particular color, but we also get a little tiny bit of a beam that comes off that actually has all the information in it. And the information that it carries, um, the information can only come, that signal can only come from the very, very top layer, can only happen from where we call something above looks different than something below. It, so it can't happen in the bulk of water, it can only happen at the surface. So that special light that comes off gives us information about how that water at the surface bonds to each other, how the molecule moves around and vibrates, and when it vibrates and grabs onto somebody else, what does that grabbing or bonding look like? And then also, uh, if you put something on the surface, then we can uh, measure this, its properties too. And we call that vibrational spectroscopy because it's giving us information about how molecules vibrate and kind of the signature modes of those molecules. So it not only detects what's there, but it tells us how they're bonded. Now the technique itself doesn't do everything, the laser technique itself doesn't do everything. And so that way, that is how we complement the experiments with uh, theoretical computational methods in order to get even more information uh, about the interface. So 
it's really powerful to have the two combined. The vibrational frequency that you're getting from the surface that's coming from this readout from your lasers, how is that actually identifiable as one thing well, in particular? Yeah, so that the frequency of what we'll get is then a, a spectrum, we call a spectrum, and that will be a series of peaks. And those peaks, the frequency of any of those peaks or the energy of any of those peaks are characteristic of a kind of a bond. So we can distinguish what kind of a molecule is there based on what that frequency is. Now, for water, uh, which we normally think of it having OH bonds and therefore OH stretches, um, it actually can, that frequency actually isn't just one, it can be very, it can be, it can shift a lot. And the way it shifts is because if it's a single water molecule alone at the surface, if it's isolated, it'll have uh, a frequency associated with the OH ones. But once they start sticking together, that frequency then moves uh, further, further into the red. And so, uh, by, by looking at the kind of signal you get for water, it can tell you whether water is behaving kind of isolated at the surface or it's bonded to several other uh, water molecules. What's so, interesting is that this, this water at the surface has this very interesting behavior that comes from this measurement. And that is that if you've got these water molecules, some of them have their OH bond sticking out of the water and the other into the water. And that gives a particularly interesting kind of a, a spectrum or a signal. So when you say they're moving into the red, you mean the wavelength is getting longer or longer. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically, if we were going into the blue, it'd be getting shorter. Right. That is just stronger bonding. Gotcha. Say. Okay. Um, and so is there a particular reason why some of those OH bonds stick up or stick down or is that random? That's a good question. In fact, I just gave a seminar on this like 10 minutes ago, and that was one of the <laughs> questions too. It's not really understood. I mean, it's kind of a combination. Even when you do simulations, you see it. So even when you do the MD simulations, there's a, a desire for some of these water molecules to be bonded like this. But what it does, it set up a very interesting junction that then this guy sticking out of the water can then bond to other species. And so it, it, but it also think about this, the fact that you, the surface tension is high, therefore it's almost like a saran wrap, you know, at the very top layer, but it evaporates, right? So you have to have some freedom there for water molecules to leave, as well as to have stronger bonding too. And, some, and so you can, it, what, what we've learned from these experiments is you've got these guys that straddle the interface. Then you go a little bit deeper and they tend to be a little bit stronger bonding than this. And so then you go in, into the bulk water and then you have you know, liquid water and a real party going on where everybody's grabbing onto different partners and everything else. But it's very different as they move to the surface and they, they start to be a little more introverted. And, and when I say that stressed out because they don't have enough dance partners, <laughs> the air doesn't want to dance with them. And so this is kind of mo this transition from this bulk behavior to where you have this more isolated behavior. So this kind of leads into some of your research and how it applies to surfactants because of, I assume that it's the bonding with surfactants that helps to break up some of these oil spills. And The bottom line in when you have an oil spill is you want to be able, as you indicated, what you want to be able to do is break it up. And you want to break it up into little tiny droplets. But those little tiny droplets of oil, we, and because they're also in ocean water, those little tiny droplets need to be stabilized so they'll stay as a droplet. And so in, in that case, then your dispersant or your soap that you put on the oil 
whether it be in your laundry or whether it be from oil spill, it has to encapsulate that droplet of oil to hold it together. And the more effective it is at holding it together, the more likely it will live long enough to be washed out to the ocean or have different, be biodegraded. Um, and so, but the problem is that the, the compounds that they use now to do that in an oil spill, many of the components of that, it's called Corexit, many of the components in that are safe, but you mix them together and they're just awful, toxic. And so um, coming up with a safer, well, really coming up with a better understanding of how to encapsulate oil and what properties, what kind of bonding interactions lead to that stronger encapsulization is really kind of the holy grail of, of the field, not only for, for um, oil spills, but also a lot of other environmental uses. And so uh, what we've done over the years is to first study very simple soaps, surfactants, how they go to the interface, how they structure, do they lay down, do they stand up at the interface, how they behave, and how that is related to a macroscopic property like measuring the surface tension. And so because soaps work effectively to lower the surface tension. So, um, and so what we've been doing most recently now is to, a lot of that we've done at a planar interface, but more recently now we're making little droplets and looking at how different soaps stabilize that, that droplet. And what, uh, you know, what are the properties as a factant that, that contribute to that nanomotion, in this case, nanomotions being stabilized. It's a little bit trickier experiment to do because you still use the two laser beams, but you're now scattering them off of a lot of little tiny droplets. So collecting the scattered light, um, uh, it just makes it a little bit trickier. Mm -hmm. With the experiments that you're doing, do you have to take in any of the environmental properties to determine how these surfactants are really gonna interact in a real environment? So we still stay at a very fundamental level, but we uh, have just started experiments where we're changing the temperature because this is a huge issue uh, where there's an oil spill, whether it be in Prince William Sound or whether it be in the Gulf. You know, these oils behave very, very differently and the dispersion relates very differently. So temperature, um, setting them under very high salt, uh, under salt conditions too, but that's about as far as we get with regards to staying still at the fundamental level, um, recognizing that this kind of information, and I've been uh, told by this by people who are working in the oil spill area, that this kind of fundamental information just doesn't exist. So you can't predict, you can't look at a molecule and kind of predict whether it would be, uh, might be more effective at this. But what we always do is start is, we choose in this case, the system we've been using in particular is one which is a chemical in the Corexit, but it's also very safe, it's also in ice cream. So, uh, and so we've been taking ones that actually are, and other molecules that are actually considered to be good uh, environmental uh, chemicals to be using to understand their uh, properties. Right, okay. Do you think that your work has any regulatory implications in terms of uh, water quality control or any of those sort of larger issues? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I mean, we don't think that further down the road again, we hope that what, we, what we're providing will help someone else uh, take it on and, and use it in any way that they can. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, it also, sometimes we lose track of the fact that it's a vehicle by which we train students to, to go on. And, right. You know, at this, the wonderful thing about this particular area of science and many areas of science is that the students just gain a lot of um, 
training in optics and chemistry and surfactants and computer programming and machining and you know a, a lot of a lot of different areas so i like this and but they also see how it relates to different fields so that's why i like it because it you're not just stuck in one little silo that was geraldine richmond a chemist at the university of oregon speaking with me about the fundamental science she's doing in her lab to understand the chemistry of what's going on at the water surface. For a different excerpt of our interview, including implications of Richmond's work for biological systems, see the 2019 special issue on the future of water. Find it on newsstands or online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.